So I, I want to ask you a question. And uh, I'm looking for participation for those of you in the room. Let me ask you this. Do any of you feel like maybe you're losing your marbles every now and then? Like, I'm, I'm losing my mind. I, I really am. I, I, think, I, I think there's a lot of us that feel like our brain used to work better than it works right now. Like, I'm, I'm losing my marbles. Some, something's going on upstairs. And, and I'm not just talking about the whole, like, you walk into a room and you go, now, why did I come here again? Because basically, if you're like 40 and up, that happens to you at least weekly, where you walk into, you open the fridge, you're like, I don't remember what I was in here to get. Oh, I was going to my computer. Like, it's just, your, your brain doesn't even work. Uh, my favorite is when, when people like walk in the room, they're like, has anyone seen my glasses? You know, yes, yes, I have. That, that, there's that, but I, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about your brain not working. I, I mean, like that part of your brain that tells you not to do something because it's not good doesn't seem to function the way it's supposed to function. Rational brain movement doesn't seem to work. So, so you keep doing things that are destructive, that hurt yourself and the people around you, and every part of your brain that should say, remember last time you did this, it didn't work well, don't do it. It just doesn't seem to work. So you go look at pornography, you hate the way you feel afterward, and you keep doing it again and again and again. You're going, what's wrong with my brain? You, you hate what alcohol does to you and to your family when you get drunk and you keep going back to it and keep drinking over and over again. What, what is wrong with me? You, you stretch the truth. You tell these lies. You don't mean to. You hate it afterward. You wish you could be honest, but you just keep spreading them because you, you want people to think better about you. And every time you do it, you're going, what's, what's wrong with me? Why can't I stop? You're paranoid, everyone's out to get you. You think the worst about the people around you and you keep hurting all your relationships. You know nothing good comes from it, but you keep doing it. And you're going, what's, what's wrong with me? It's like your brain's not working. Well, there is a reason why you keep hurting yourself again and again and hurting the people around you. It's because there is something right now that is eating away at your brain. And it's not a flesh-eating amoeba. It's something called pride. Pride is a disease that is trying to suck the brains right out of your big old head. I promise you. Now, most of you don't look at pride that way. You, you think about pride being something that it's anti-Christian, supposed to humble yourself, but pride is actually a brain-eating disease that, that makes you insane. Do things you would never do otherwise. I, I want to suggest this to you. I, I want to tell you that today, pride is the number one thing that is keeping you from becoming the person God intends you to become. You keep tripping up and falling down. You can't seem to get back up over and over again. It's the pride in you that's causing that to happen. It is pride in you that is causing you to hurt yourself and the people around you that you love. And until you learn the antidote to pride, you are going to wreck your life again and again and again. And there is an antidote. And it's something you've got to take every single day. You don't take just one time because pride wells up every single day. This morning, I want to teach you how to recognize the destructive power of pride in your life and then what to do about it, the antidote you take every single day. We're going to find it in the story of one of the most pride-filled men on the planet, a guy named Pharaoh, and we're going to find the story in Exodus chapter 10. So open your Bible, Exodus chapter 10. Now, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are, we're going to the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, started all the way back in chapter 1. It's taken us a long time to get to chapter 10. But we've been tracking along with the story of how God raised up Moses to liberate the Israelites who were slaves by the millions in the land of Egypt. And we're now about to enter into the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. There are 10 in total. 
And we've seen now seven times that Pharaoh has hardened his heart against God, acting insanely against Almighty God. And this morning, we're going to see the root cause of it, the pride that was inside of him. But we're also going to learn through his story the antidote. So let's start chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, I want to stop there in the first two verses because it's very easy for you to get off and miss the point over here. Because the first thing it says is, Yahweh said, I have hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And you might accidentally think what's going on here is that well, it's not really Pharaoh's fault. God hardened his heart and therefore this is God's fault, not Pharaoh's fault. But let me, let me remind you of what I taught you two weeks ago, those of you who were here. I explained that what's going on when it says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart is that God was just accepting Pharaoh's rejection of him. The first five plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. And then by the sixth plague, it says Yahweh hardened his heart. There was a, a turning point. There was a moment when Yahweh finally said, all right, Pharaoh, if you're going to persistent persistently and consistently reject me, I accept your rejection of me. And the last five plagues are what it looks like when we harden our hearts toward God. We live in that hardening. So the point of this isn't when it says that Yahweh hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart. It wasn't to say God was against Pharaoh. It was just to show the ramifications of a hardened heart. But actually in verse two, you see the real purpose behind what God is doing. He said, so that you can one day tell your sons and your grandsons and ultimately your great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren the story of what I've done so they can, they can know that I am Yahweh. The whole purpose of the signs and wonders and the parting of the Red Sea that's going to be coming up in a few weeks was all so they would have a story to tell generation after generation of a real God who acted in real history. They could point back to that moment and say, remember when we were slaves in Egypt, listen to what our God did, displayed real power and real love. And always pointing back to that story. And that was the whole purpose behind it. Well, so they would have a story to tell. But the story is exceptionally important because there are two poles in the story. There's Israel and there's Pharaoh. And Israel was the position of humility. They were the ones who were slaves in the land of Egypt who could do nothing to save themselves. And then you had Pharaoh, the epitome of pride and arrogance, who stood against Almighty God. And the whole story of the Exodus... It's something we learn in the New Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's in this story that you and I discover the antidote to pride. It is when we humble ourselves before Almighty God. But the whole point of the story is, know who you are, Israel. You were the ones who could not save yourselves. You were the ones who merely cried out to me, and I came to liberate you. When you humble yourself, you'll receive my grace. But let me tell you, when you bow up against me like Pharaoh, I'm going to oppose you. In fact, what you learn in verse 3 as we keep reading is that the very thing God is opposing in Pharaoh is his pride. Look at verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hell, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, 
from the, day, from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I love that last sentence. It says, then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. This is a very different Moses than we encountered at the beginning of these. If, if you remember the very beginning, Moses is going, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? Who am I? I, I can't even, I have a speech impediment. I can't even talk before God. No, send somebody else. I can't do it. He's like this shriveled up guy who's scared to death to go before Pharaoh. And then you have this new picture where he's like got the microphone. He's like walking up going, Pharaoh, you better be listening to me. God's going to bring a plague against you. You better watch out. And he turns around and walks off. I mean, he just drops the mic. So he turns and walks out. It's not, it's not a real microphone here. Y'all can, y'all can have that. Did you catch it, Dalen? Good. He caught it. There's this, this boldness to Moses, and the reason there's a boldness to Moses is because he's now seen seven times whenever God has come in power and shown the Egyptian gods to have no power before him. He is bold, and he drops a bomb on Pharaoh. He says, I'm delivering a message to you, Pharaoh. Here's what God says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? What Yahweh is doing is he's calling out the antics of Pharaoh. He's saying, how long are you going to be insane, Pharaoh? Look around you. Look at the land. At this point now, after the seventh plague, it was the hell storm. If you remember from last week, it, it decimated everything. The trees are broken over from the hell. All the grain, all the fruit, everything's gone. It says the only thing that's left in chapter 9, verse 32, is a little bit of wheat and emmer, which, are, which grow in the ground that hadn't budded yet. That's the only sustenance they have in the entire land. There are still cows and bulls and livestock dead all over the place from the sixth plague. There are still boils all over his body from the fifth plague. He sees the ramifications of the power of Yahweh, and he has still refused to bow down to him. That's what you call insanity. That's what pride will do you. Pride will make you think you can do what you cannot do. Pride made Pharaoh think he could stand up to a God he had no right standing up to. Pride will do the exact same thing in your life if you let it. Pride will make you insane. It'll make you think that you can handle things that you cannot handle. It will make you think that you can struggle with pornography and not get rid of cable and monitor your computer because you can just handle it. Pride will make you think that you can be an alcoholic and keep alcohol in your house because you can control it. Pride will make you think that you can handle that problem you're going through right now without telling anybody because you don't want to be a burden to anybody else. Pride will make you think that though you have fallen 100 times into the same sin, this next time is going to be different. You can handle it. Pride will make you insane to think that you can handle things that you cannot handle. It's exactly what's going on with Pharaoh. He thinks he can go before Almighty God and handle it. And God says to him, how long Will you refuse to humble yourself? How long until you realize how weak you are compared to me? Pharaoh, how long? Listen, that question is one that God wants to ask us too. How long before we open up our eyes and see we can't do this? God asked it of Pharaoh because he's trying to open up his eyes. But here's what's so interesting. It wasn't just Pharaoh that asked this question. Or excuse me. Uh, it wasn't just God who asked this question of Pharaoh. His own people started asking him this question. An odd turn of events in verse 7. Listen to what his own servants say to him. Verse 7, it says, Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? 
Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Now remember, these are servants. The Hebrew word there means slaves. These are Pharaoh's slaves, his servants. And they're rising up to Pharaoh, the person they believe to be a god, and they're going, how long are you going to let this happen? They're turning on him. Now they try to soften it a little bit by blaming Moses. How long are you going to put up with this guy Moses? But make no mistake about it, they're angry at Pharaoh. That's why the last thing they say is, can't you look around and see the land? He's going, look around. We're on the threshold of Hades here. We're hanging on by a thread, Pharaoh. How long are you going to drag us through this? This, this is crazy for servants to speak to the Pharaoh that way because he could have demanded all of them to be beheaded the moment they spoke this. But they were just, they were just ready. Whatever. We're done with you, Pharaoh. How long are you going to let this happen? Now, what's so interesting to me is the way Pharaoh responds because you realize he recognizes he's standing on thin ice. Instead of having them beheaded, instead of removing them, he actually listens to them. And one thing you know about Pharaoh, he's a fool, but he's a smart fool, and he understands politics. And he knows that the tide of public opinion is changing against him when his own servants are calling him out. And so he says, I better do something about it. So he calls back Moses and Aaron to see what he can do about the situation. That's verses 8 and on. Let's keep reading. It says, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. The end of it, he just kicks them out. Get out of here. No way I'm going to let you do all that. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the first time Pharaoh actually understands what's about to take place. Because before this, the request has been, Moses says, let us go a three days journey out to the wilderness where we can sacrifice to the Lord. And the assumption is they're going to come back. But Pharaoh is on to them. And so he asks a very pointed question. He says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. But let me ask you this. Who's going with you? Again, he's a smart fool. He knows the answer to that question will determine what's about to take place. Because he knew, according to Hebrew faith, Jewish faith, if it was just about sacrifices, only the men needed to go. Women and children, they weren't allowed to make sacrifices. Only the men were. By the way, it was the same thing in Egyptian religion. Only the men were allowed to make sacrifices. So if it was just to go out and make sacrifices, only the men would need to go. And so he asked Moses, okay, who's going with you? He wants to know the real intention. And Moses says, well, all of us are going. Our men, our women, our children, young and old, we're all going out there. And in that moment, Pharaoh says, holy moly, they ain't coming back. And that's why he says, well, Yahweh better be with you if I ever let you go out there. No way I'm letting you go and never come back. Your men can go. Keep the women and children here so you have to come back. Now, let me tell you why this is, this is crazy. Pharaoh is now 0 for 7 in combating Yahweh. Every time he's come against him, Yahweh just mowed him down. 0 for 7, and he still thinks he's in control. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to let you do that, all your men and women and children. No, no, your men can go. That's it. Deal or no deal, you take it. Get out of here. Pharaoh still thinks he's in control. Listen, when you're batting 0 and 7, you are not in control. It's insane to think you're in control, but that's what insanity will do to you. Make you think you can call the shots. 
Again, remember what's going on. At any moment, Pharaoh could look out the window and see the devastation of these plagues and know that he was not in control. But when you're filled with pride, your brain doesn't work. And you think you can bargain with God. That's what Pharaoh was doing. He thinks he can bargain with God. Okay, I'll give you that, but I'm not going to give you all the women and children. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the clearest sign for you that you are filled with pride is you try to bargain with God. When something happens in your life, you try to barter and bargain with God. I don't, I don't like that my marriage right now is feeling the way it is. Okay, God, I'll start going to church if you'll heal my marriage. Like we can bargain with God. All right, I'm struggling to get that promotion at work. All right, God, I'll give my tithe if you'll give me a promotion at work. We're, we're gonna control God. Someone in our family is sick, and we go, okay, if I got a mentor or a kid, if I do that, God, then you heal my family member, I'll do it. Like we can barter with God. Let me tell you why that's insane. He owns everything. We don't have a chip to barter with. It'd be like me going to Jeff Bezos going, all right, brother, I got 10 bucks right here. I'll buy all your Amazon stock from you. That's insane. He's not going to give me his stock for 10 bucks. He doesn't need my 10 bucks. God doesn't need whatever little thing we have to offer him. He's not going to barter and bargain. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can't bargain with him, and it's insane to think we can do so. Please, if, if you don't hear anything I say, hear this one thing. We don't get to define the terms and conditions with our God when we relate to him. He defines them for us. He tells us what to do, and we do it. If we don't relate to God in that way, we don't understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. When he tells us to go somewhere, we go. When he tells us to give something up, we give it up. When he tells us to forgive somebody, even when they've hurt us and they don't deserve it, we forgive them. When he tells us to love somebody, even when they don't deserve our love and they're hard to love, we love them. When he tells us to share our faith with somebody, even if we're scared, we do it. Why? Because he's in control, not us. He defines the terms and conditions, not us. That's the only sane way to relate to an infinite God who created us and owns everything. But when you're filled with pride, your brain doesn't work. And you get insane enough to think that you can make demands of Almighty God. Let me tell you the problem with that. There are consequences when we act in our insanity. There are always consequences when we do these things. We end up regretting them later. Pharaoh is no different. Here he is in his insanity thinking he can control the situation. He can kick out Moses and Aaron. He can define the terms. And sure enough, in verses 12 through 15, the payback comes. Let's keep on reading. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell is left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Okay, that right there, that was the, that was the end of it all. The land now is officially ruined. So up to this moment, I told you back in chapter 9, verse 32, it said that there was still some wheat and emmer. There was still some food left for them that was just now starting to sprout. They had a little bit of hope that they could have some food and famine wouldn't be in the land. And at this moment now, this plague of locusts, which I, it's interesting. There's still locust plagues and grasshopper plagues that happen today. 
fact, I was watching a video of it. It was too gross to show you, but you know, they have videos of what these locust plagues look like. And it is nasty. Just everywhere, locusts, every, like you can't walk without like literally squishing them. They're hitting your face, they're bouncing. I mean, it's just crazy. But what's worse is just that the land utterly devastated. It looks like a bomb has gone off. There is nothing. There's not a tree standing up. There's not a green thing anywhere. It is hopeless. And it's in this moment that Pharaoh realizes he has screwed up majorly. God has just killed off whatever remaining deity he had been putting his hope in. If he had been hoping that Seth, the god of wind, would protect him, God showed his power when he drove the east wind in to bring the locusts. If he had hoped that Min, the god of crops, or or Nebri, the the god of grain, would help him, he saw they couldn't do anything. Anubis, the, the guardian of the field, none of these gods could help out Egypt. God just kills them one by one by one, showing they've got no power. And here's Pharaoh looking out the window, and his first first thought is, what in the world have I done? I want you to know, when you act insanely, when you do something, like you go back in the same sin pattern that your brain's not functioning, there will always come a moment when you were done where you will look up and go, what have I done? I cannot believe I did that. I, I, I thought... That online relationship was just a friendship. I didn't realize it would take me to this place where I was unfaithful. And you look up one day and go, what have I done? You you have that all night drinking thing. You go out and you don't even remember everything. And you wake up the next morning and you go, what have I done? You spend all this money you don't have to buy things you need. You get those things and you look up at your bank account. You can't pay for it. And you go, what have I done? Listen, I want you to know, for me, the, the worst is... I lose my temper. I go insane when my kids, I feel disrespected by them. And I'll get stern and I'll raise my voice and get a deep growl and then I can look and I can see in their eyes that I've hurt them. And every single time it happens, I come out of them and I go, what have I done? I hate it. I want so desperately not to do that. And it's like my brain doesn't work and I do it again and again and every single time I end, I go, what have I done? When you act insanely, when your brain's not working, you will have that moment when your insanity is over and you snap out of it and you will ask the question, what have I done? What's going on to Pharaoh? He sees the consequences of it and he wakes up going, what have I done? This is now the time for every single one of us when we start to get repentant. This is when we start going, oh God, what have I done? Help me. Pharaoh's no different. I want you to listen as we finish up the passage, how he responds when he finally wakes up to his insanity. Verse 16 says this, then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. So he ended the exact same place. Pharaoh doesn't let him go, but again, You read that Yahweh, the Lord, hardened his heart, and you might want to blame Yahweh, but let me remind you, this is God just accepting Pharaoh's rejection of him. In fact, there's a clue in verse 17, there's two of them, that show you that this was not genuine repentance from Pharaoh. This is why God rejects it. It looks like genuine repentance on the outside until you study it. If you were to dig into verse 17, you would see some wording that gave you signs of the the lack of genuine repentance in Pharaoh. He says, now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. 
Now that, that phrase, only this once, in Hebrew is a word that means this one time. In other words, he's saying, yeah, I know I screwed up this one time, but, but can't you see it in your heart to forgive me? I mean, it's just one little mistake. Now think about how jacked up it is that Pharaoh would say, I've only screwed up this one little time. God, surely it's not that bad. He's been enslaving the people of God for decades. He's been oppressing them, having them murdered. He's been insulting Yahweh over and over and over, rejecting Moses, rejecting God, and he has the audacity to say, you know, I just screwed up this one little time. Can't you see it in your heart to forgive me? Let me tell you what that teaches us. Pride can make us insane enough to see the fault in everybody else and miss it in ourselves, to minimize the sin in us and maximize the sin in everyone else around us. Jesus talked about this, by the way. He said, why in the world are you trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a two-by-four hanging out of your eye? Doesn't make any sense. And his point was you can see everybody else's speck, but you can't see the two-by-four in your own eye. You, you can't even see. This is what pride does to you. It blinds you to your own sin to the point where you look around and you can go, man, people are screwed up in this world, and you not see it in yourself. This is one of the main reasons why people don't like Christians. They don't like churchgoers because they see a bunch of judgmental people. And here's the reason why. Even as Christians, we can be so filled with pride, we can look down our noses at everybody else and go, man, those people are just so screwed up. And we judge them without seeing the sin inside of us, and they can see right through it. It was interesting when I talk about this. There are some of you going, yeah, preach it, Jason. I wish my spouse was here to hear this. They need to hear it, man. I got to send this message to somebody. They need to hear this thing. Judgmental, golly, they're so, they're so bad. They can't see their own sin. Right now, you're judging somebody else while I'm talking about the sin that we can't see our own judgment. That's what pride does to us. It makes us think this is somebody else's problem, not our problem. So this is not somebody else's problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. We don't see our own sin. We're blind to it. This is what's going on with Pharaoh. Oh, surely you can forget this one little mistake I've made. He can't see the two by four hanging out of his eye. But there was another clue that he wasn't genuinely repentant. It was the next part of verse 17. He says, you know, please forgive this once. And he says, plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. That word death is very important. He says, I'll ask God to remove this death from me. He doesn't say, ask God to remove this sin from me, even though he's already said, I've sinned against you and against your God. But he says, please remove this death from me. Now, when he says death, he's talking about the death of the land. The fact that there's nothing living left in the land. There's nothing green in the land. He says, remove this death and have your God bring life back to the land. In other words, he's not asking for God to remove his sin. He's asking for God to remove the consequences of his sin. Now, we've been talking about this every single week during these plagues. That is not genuine repentance. When you say, all right, God, I screwed up this one time. Can you take away the consequences of my sin? But you don't care about the sin in your heart? That's not humility. That's just you covering your own backside. And God does not respond to that. Pharaoh was not genuinely repentant. He just wanted his circumstances to be dealt with. And because of his lack of genuine repentance, he kept suffering again and again until he lost everything. Let me tell you, let me tell you why that matters. All along, he had the one thing he, he needed in his hip pocket he could have pulled out at any moment. It's called humility. He could have at any moment chosen to humble himself before this powerful God and said, I, I give up. I raised the white flag. God, you are too powerful for me. He could have humbled himself and stopped the whole thing. 
but he refused to bow down. This is why Yahweh said to him back in verse three, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse, Pharaoh? How long will you keep doing this to yourself? And I think God wants to ask us the exact same question today. If we could draw a circle around ourselves and imagine no one else is in this room, that Yahweh is not talking to Pharaoh, he's not talking to the person sitting next to you or anybody else, he's talking to you. And I think he wants to ask you, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? When's it gonna stop? When are you gonna open your eyes and realize you can't do this? How long? All we have to do is humble ourselves. You wanna know how we humble ourselves? We just believe the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where humility comes from. It can't be a fake humility. I know I'm amazing, I'm just gonna act like I'm not. That's, that's not genuine humility. Real humility is much closer to the word humiliation. I'm humiliated before God because of my sin and my brokenness. You remember what I told you back in verse two? This whole thing was about a story for the people of God that they could tell their kids and their grandkids the story of the Exodus, a real God who, who worked in real history with real love and power. But this story of the Exodus is just designed to point to the greater Exodus, the salvation of those of us who were slaves to our own sin and brokenness. This story points to Jesus who would come and Jesus would come rescue us because we were slaves, not in the land of Egypt. We were slaves in the domain of darkness. And the worst part is we chose that slavery. We rebelled against our God and we walked up to Satan and said, here, handcuff me. I want your domain. We rejected the God who created us by trying to live our own way. And we were slaves unable to help ourselves. And when we know who we are in the story, then we say, Jesus, save me. I cannot do this on my own. I can't go to church enough. I can't give enough money. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't do this. I'm broken, God. Only you can save me. And from that position of humility, God gives grace to the humble. And so when you and I look and see there's a real God who took on real flesh, who came to a real cross, who rose from a real grave, then we know the love and the power of our God. And we look to that story and we know God opposes the proud. We're not gonna to try to be proud and think we can do this. God gives grace to the humble. We humble ourselves and we say, God, if I'm so screwed up, you had to take on flesh to save me, then I need your help. I can't do this on my own. Every morning we wake up and we inhale the gospel again, reminding ourselves how broken we are, but how gracious of a God we have. And in that position of humility, we discover the power of God. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God? Listen, I want you to hear this. You may be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and still filled to the brim with pride. I, I believe there are some of you right now, and you are wrecking your life, falling into the same sin patterns again and again and again, and it's because of your pride. You feel lonely and isolated because you're harming the people around you because you keep judging them. You keep counting all their sins, unable to see the sin inside of you. There are some of you who are desperately lonely and overwhelmed because you refuse to humble yourself and ask for help from somebody else. There are some of you who cannot recognize the fact that you can't carry that sin, you can't carry that burden, but you're trying to do it because you're afraid to cast that burden on anybody else. And today, the Lord is saying, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? Would you humble yourself? There are some of you right now, God is calling you to do something, and you think you're in control. 
And you're telling God, I refuse to do that. And God is saying, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? 